1: And welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karina, one of your hosts for today. And I'm Karen, back again and excited for this fifth episode of the second
2: season entitled Take Good Care. And I'm Maoli. Yes, we're back with even more stories from new authors and one which you may recognize from the previous episode.
3: And I'm Steven. Thank you for joining us for Episode 5, entitled Take Good Care, an episode dedicated to discussing caretaking in various forms. Our first piece is by an author named Angela Deegan. Angela is 22 years old and lives on Long Island. She's on the cusp of graduating John Jay College with a double major in English and Criminology, with a minor in writing. She enjoys sleeping and eating burritos.
1: Thanks, Stephen. Let's take a listen to Angela's piece
4: entitled Milk Carton Kid. Milk Carton Kid. A fruit lamp hangs above the kitchen table. Light seeps out from the colored glass, cutting rainbow slivers on the tabletop. Back at my father's house, every piece of furniture stands untouched, practically waiting for acceptance into the MoMA. But Poppy's house feels different. The yellow paneled walls swell with kitchen knickknacks and worn furniture. A porcelain bust of Mussolini sits atop the china cabinet. Poppy insisted he hated the man. Yet the figurine was always present in the background of my childhood, watching us. I dunk a ladle into the metal pot sitting at the center of the table and fish out the hacked-off chunks of vegetable and gray pieces of meat floating in red liquid. Heavy drops splatter onto the vinyl table cover decorated with faded roosters. Poppy trails my movements impatiently. "'That's enough!' he shouts, the porcelain bowl barely filled halfway. This isn't for you, I say, going for another scoop and handing it to Jamie. His brow wrinkles, and he puffs out his lips the way a child would, when denied a favorite toy. He folds his arms tightly across his chest and shakes his head, looking to my sisters for reassurance that I am, indeed, an asshole. Jamie and Kelly laugh, and I finally set the soup in front of him. He forgets the momentary grudge as quick as the shake of an Etch-A-Sketch. He's all mustache and hot air. It's only about routine now. If we have the audacity to divert, he notices. Sometimes, I like to think he's faking it, milking it for what it's worth, pulling all our legs. A dark, jagged scar runs down Poppy's forearm. As a kid, I would harass him mercilessly about the alleged butterfly tattoo he had removed. I was unconvinced he would have a butterfly snipped off his skin simply because he was fearful of his mother's reaction. It had to be some obscenity, a naked woman, or a satanic symbol that would mortally offend his Catholic mother. He doesn't remember getting a tattoo at all anymore. Occasionally, I'll ask him, just for kicks, but he simply points a wrinkled finger at the discolored mark, distorted further by skin like tree bark. I can't ask him about his world travels, or what my mother was like when she was younger, things I should have seriously asked him before, instead of the sarcastic manner I'm inclined to. I would press him for non-existent war stories, where in reality he was just some guy fixing airplane parts, not privy to any kind of hand-to-hand combat. He abruptly pushes himself up from the wooden chair. I watch his slight wobble and the careful rearrangement of his 80-something-year-old bones. I have to go to the lobby, he announces. You have to go to bed, I say. I have to go to bed, he nods. Goodbye. Do you want dessert, Jamie asks. No. He didn't hear. He may have lost his goddamn mind and have the appetite of a cancer patient, but he still has the same avid sweet tooth. Go figure what things stick. Jamie asks him again, with more force. His wild, salt-and-pepper eyebrows shoot up, his mouth forms an O, and he immediately plops back into his chair. She hands him a chocolate pudding cup, and he digs into it, a paper-thin smile hidden beneath his thick mustache. I wonder if he sees it. His own mind unraveling, the chunks of his life that have gone missing, just like some kid on a milk carton. Before he really lost it, he seemed to have these almost moments of clarity. Once, in the middle of dinner, he looked up at the lamp, or maybe past it at something else, fingers tented over his nose and whispered, I gotta remember her. I asked him what he meant, and he dropped his hands to the table. What? He replied what did you say? I asked him again. I didn't say nothing. He empties the pudding cup and he's up again. He grips onto the tops of the wooden chairs, shuffling across the mustard, yellow linoleum tiles. He bobs his head side to side, trying to see past Kelly and out the window, searching for cars, people, or an alien. Who the hell knows? There are no streetlights in our neighborhood. He's met with a wall of darkness. Slowly, he walks to the living room window and slips his fingers through the plastic blinds. He walks over to the door and jiggles the doorknob. He frowns and mutters gibberish under his breath. He shoots us a dirty look. We left it unlocked. He turns the lock and checks the window again. Suddenly, he makes little boxing motions in the air, bouncing his hips to the background chatter of the living room TV. How do you feel? I ask. I feel good. His crinkled fists punch the air at some invisible opponent. Poppy stops. His arms swing at his sides. In his plaid boxers and tube socks, he puffs out his chest like he's some big, tough guy. You look good, Kelly says. Poppy sticks out his chin. Do I? She laughs and he deflates. His skin droops over the sides of the elastic waistband. He resets and wanders back to the door. He begins making the final rounds now, like he's the fucking Pope. Poppy takes each of her hands, kisses them, tells us goodbye. This is a relatively easy night. The constant back-and-forth shuffle, shaking hands, checking locks, can take upwards of an hour. Before disappearing into the hall, he stops and stares at us with a childlike wonder. His cloudy eyes settle on each of our faces. He gestures to all of us, waving his hands haphazardly in the air. Three girls, he says. All girls! Mom pulls her teeth into a smile. Yes, Dad. Three. She really has the patience for this sort of familiar dialogue. He doesn't know that she's his daughter. He's far too entranced by us. When my sisters and I leave for too long, he makes the trek up the steep flight of stairs, covered by a sickly orange shag carpet, and looks for us. Love you, Poppy, Kelly shouts after him, constantly trying to get him to say it back. He stops, smiles. Very good, he says. Thank you. I sit on the couch. Eyes half open, watching reruns of Ren and Stimpy. The smell of weed seeps past the incense my sister keeps lit on the top step of the basement stairs. Poppy walks by in Velcro sandals and boxers pulled past his belly button. When the seasons change, he'll thankfully offer Nana's old green bathrobe. He scratches his stomach as he walks into the kitchen. I glance at the clock. It's almost midnight. Whenever he's up this late, Typically, it becomes a shit show. I make sure the house alarm is on. I don't want a repeat of the window incident. Apparently, two o'clock in the morning is optimal time to climb out a fucking window. The cops picked him up, and he landed himself in Stony Brook Hospital. Now the squad cars in the neighborhood have his picture, the one where he stood next to a wood carving of a Native American Indian chief to compare noses. He stuck out his large, hooked nose with a deadpan expression. They were identical. Poppy wanders back out of the kitchen eating a cookie. He checks the locks and goes back to his room. Minutes later, he shuffles back out, fully dressed in an orange collared shirt and khaki shorts. He's ready for a day that's already over. Poppy, why are you dressed? I say. It's nighttime. I'm dressed, he repeats. It's night. Go to bed. He nods. Bed. Okay. He ignores me and starts walking into the kitchen. I follow him. I touch the crook of his elbow. Come on, I'll walk you to your room. Come on, it's late. He shakes me off. Oh, will you shut up? Poppy grabs another vanilla wafer off the counter and peers out the window. See? It's night, I say. It's time for bed. Wafer half in his mouth. He sticks out his arms and starts shaking his hips like he's doing the hula. I pinch the bridge of my nose. It's night, Poppy. You look tired. Do you want to go to bed? All right, he agrees. I'll go to bed. I put my hands on his shoulders, all bone and loose skin, and attempt to steer him in the direction of his room. He breaks free and starts to shuffle towards the couch. He sits down, legs crossed, hands covering his face. I sigh and drop down into the seat beside him. Eventually, Kelly comes up, feeds in the same prepackaged spiel, but the words don't register. We both sit. And hope he folds first.
3: Wow, this piece is amazing. <laughs> like it, it brought, it made me think of my grandmother who also has dementia. And, you know, it, it was just very moving. Um, You know, it, made, it brought back a lot of, you know, bittersweet memories. But um, it was, but thank you. thank
1: you yeah seriously Mm -hmm. oh thank you for being here today angela and and sharing your story with us Uh, we spoke a little bit prior to you reading and um as you know i cried and most of the (laughs) listeners here when i do host i normally don't cry Mm -hmm. yeah so don't look at me like that i I just just got some side eye in this room thanks for having me (laughs) let's just jump right into these questions Mm -hmm. then
3: okay um so your descriptions and the moments that you chose to reflect on in your piece, were they were great. And they really helped to endear us to Poppy. Um, can you ex- talk a little bit about the writing process for this piece and why you chose some of these, or this moment in particular? Mm.
4: Um, well, I mean, this moment, it's literally it's kind of every night for me. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty easy <laughs> yeah. to write about when it happens every day. So like I have a pretty like crappy memory, but because mm. it happens so frequently, yeah. mm-hmm. I can remember it. Um, and so I literally just jotted down like moments of dialogue or just weird shit he does, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, my phone is just like full of notes of just, I guess, little scenes, moments. Oh
1: experiences mm. with poppy
0: that's
3: pretty
1: cool that's that so is really interesting cool. as authors like um just from the author standpoint and stepping away from poppy for just a second um <laughs> <laughs> having those notes like to, to back up to like write down those experiences because you never know when they're gonna they're gonna pop up in a piece and you're gonna really really be able to, to capture your readers and, and tell the story the way that you really want to yeah that's awesome so uh take note guys <laughs> <laughs> for sure um. So how is Poppy? How's he doing? What's 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 he up to right now?
4: I mean, he's still living. <laughs> so yeah. okay, oh, good. Sorry. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's gotten like worse. It's, I guess, like interesting to kind of see the decline because I've written about um my Poppy before mm-hmm. for like a mm-hmm. fiction piece that was pretty like bi- biographical or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in that piece, we were just. We just took away his car because we—he was getting like red light tickets, like yeah. every day. Oh. <laughs> um, but like now, he's kind of losing control of his mm-hmm. bodily functions and stuff. Like he's wearing it those sexy sucks. Depends, he's strutting in now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so just to
1: be clear, Poppy has dementia. dementia. Yeah, okay. it's
4: not Alzheimer's, but okay. they're still like kind of similar. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. They cross over in mm-hmm. certain areas. Yeah, oh. for sure. So to kind of piggyback off of what Steven said in terms of uh, depicting your character so well, de- depicting your poppy so well, um, I can't get over how well um, you you just do these few vignettes, how, how like perfect these vignettes are. Um, and you just really just make this picture so clear for us to see what it means to have to interact with someone who suffers from dementia And uh, I think some key lines that pop out in your piece are um, sometimes I like to think he's faking it, milking it for what it's worth, pulling our legs. And I know that you meant that in like a little bit of a a playful, funny, um, but it also it has this like the serious undertone that it's tough. We all know it's tough when when we have to take care of someone. I have elderly grandparents, too, that I, um, you know, have to step up for. And that's my responsibility. And even though they have kids, it's it's a toughie so I guess what I really want to ask is is do you feel yourself struggling with with the burden of having to to be there for him or um you know the sheer the sheer amount of work that it must take to care for someone who needs so much care like is it tough
4: um I mean It's not like easy, but (laughs) it's not just me taking care Mm -hmm. of him. Like, it's my sisters. They do a lot, and my mom does a lot. And even like um, my aunts and uncles, like, I mean, they like come and pick him up on the weekends sometimes just to get him out of the house because he'll like stay in bed. But um, I don't know. He did so much for us, like, during our childhood that I don't really feel like it's a burden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, even at the house even though he has dementia and stuff like that, like I'm way happier living with him than I was mm-hmm. like Ever. at like my father's house or anything like that. Yeah. So
1: I can, uh, I can agree to an extent. I just wasn't sure if other people felt the same about having individuals in your lives that do so much for you and so much for the family. And like it, it really pulls together this like how important generations are and, and you're amazing for, yeah. for no, writing no, this yeah, and for, for sure. doing this
0: yeah i don't know i just i just got really emotional at that because it's such a like a beautiful notion that it's almost like something that's owed after all he's done for you but it's also something that you just like doing for him because
3: yeah, he, it's really given it's, yeah it's not it's, not it's not like a debt yeah, but yeah, it's just totally
0: really not but maybe that wasn't the right language for it but yeah you're like happy living with them and that just i don't know that makes you really like happy Today Thank that you.
2: That,
4: yeah, I mean it's not all bad. You know he yeah. he does funny stuff.
0: He <laughs>
2: so, he's always honestly, yeah. honestly, he yeah. seems
0: like a cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> I would hang out with Poppy. I you, real. Real. No joke. He's we in chill. love with women, so he might. Like, <laughs> no, like,
4: <laughs> well, you are He's actually like felt up, <laughs> uh, like nurse. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, oh, you like
0: just my,
3: stared at her chest my, and then my, went like that. And my this, my oh, grandmother grabbed my butt be. one time. <laughs> yeah, she she has dementia too, and it it was weird. Right.
0: Thank you, Angela, for being here and for sharing your story and Poppy's
1: as well. All
4: right. yeah. Thank
5: you for Thank listening. You. <laughs>
2: Our next piece is by a returning author, one of our Life Out who traveled to Tanzania this past summer and wrote this piece there, actually, while volunteering at an orphanage. Miss Samantha Jones. (laughs) Samantha wants to live in a world filled with open creative thinkers, books that are bundled with espresso shots and cures for her procrastination. A student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, she is completing her bachelor's in English with minors in writing and psychology. After taking a creative nonfiction class with Professor Madrazo, she found her passion to write the creative non-fiction genre. She plans to attend graduate school for speech pathology to later help children with autism and hoping to one day open up her own art school for kids with disabilities and learning disabilities to help them overcome the daily challenges they face in school and the real world. When Samantha is not writing creative nonfiction or trying not to let her head explode from heavy workloads, you can find her baking cakes for family, friends, and her dog, dancing and singing to Broadway music, if no one is home, and looking up healthy recipes while eating the cakes she bakes and burritos. Thank you, Mayeli.
0: Let's take a listen to Samantha's piece entitled Johnson.
6: I'm unsure whether Johnson is contagious, but I know his smile is. His two front teeth shine like the night that which kids those not much bigger than him, are forced to dig for in the 499 mines that line the northern edge of Tanzania. Near this place, the only known site that the bright purple jewels are found, Johnson lives in Latin Africa, a children's village for the sick and disabled, those that no other orphanages will take. Their last chance, Mamelin says. This place here is Johnson's last chance. The place that keeps the world from swallowing him whole. Johnson was one of Mama Lynn's thousands of rescues. She tells stories of the kids who have been placed here. Stories of the kids found starving, so for prostitution, tied to trees, trapped in cages, left without food or water for days. Johnson came in at six months old, she says. Very sick. But he made it, she explains. He's now eight years old, yet stands in front of me at only two feet tall. His lungs rattle when he breathes like the toys I hope he had as a baby. Mama Lynn says he's one of her sickest. His lungs are torn through with holes, she explains. And so, since he can't usually get enough breath to speak, Johnson rarely, if ever, speaks. After one of our first day's teaching workshops with the kids at Light in Africa, I bowed down to his slight height that which is smaller than his age because Jackson our road manager translator companion tells me to he explains that Johnson wants to touch the top of my head <laughs> what why it's a gesture Jackson explains that which signifies the key swahili phrase said when the young meet the old shikamo he's saying to me offering me a sign of respect i've heard other kids who can speak sometimes greet me on the street with this phrase but I didn't know Johnson could also do this with a simple gesture, that which is taught to babies so that at even a young age, they can say hello to their parents, grandparents and other elders. Back home, Shikamo would translate to, I am under your knees. However, back at home, we don't have a specific greeting to show respect for elders, to show immediate love for our elders, to show that we look up to them for their wisdom, for living a long life, for Raising an entire generation. So here I am, bending down to the tiniest eight-year-old under Mount Kilimanjaro. One whose lungs sit beneath the ribs I hug like two accordions dotted with holes, which prevents him from running, speaking, and being free. Just so he can tell me that he's under my knees. Marahaba, I reply, the standard response to Shikamo. He smiles again. He's pleased that I know what to say in response, even though he can't tell me that. (sighs) I'm used to loving someone who can't tell me things. My cousin back in New York can't speak either. At every family gathering, I ask, Andrew, can I have a kiss? Knowing that he can't answer, but that he understands, because he never fails to bow down his head for me to kiss it. I kiss my cousin's head to show I accept his hello. Now, can I have a good kiss? I joke with him. Without fail, he comes back over as I bend down on one knee to accept an even messier wet kiss on my cheek. Like Johnson, Andrew is shorter than his age would indicate. Andrew, how old are you? I ask. As his tongue tries to form the words to signify his age, it just gets tied into knots. Twelve, I pronounced him slowly, hoping he gets it this time. But his severe autism only allows him to produce mumbles instead of the words he can say in his head with no problem. He continues to jump up and down, shrieking an e that pierces my ears. It's a sound my aunt, Andrew's mother, often hears all day long. He makes this noise when he's excited, nervous, or upset. This is the only noise he truly knows, the only way he can fully communicate. It's the noise that's... Home to him. And ironically, it's the noise that keeps him home, since my Aunt Denise, his mom, fears taking him out on account of this horrible noise. She is sentenced to a lifetime of shame because of Andrew, because of his noise. She's embarrassed by her son, which is for a normal one like my brothers, her nephews. My aunt watches my brothers grow, learn, speak, write, play sports, and do all the things Andrew will never get to do. I often watch her watch them with envy, and sometimes I watch her watch Andrew with disappointment, with anger even. In response, Andrew usually just smiles. He has chosen to live a life of happiness, Jackson says to me as we look down at Johnson's proud smile. He has chosen to live a philosophy that Timon and Pumbaa taught me at his age. Hakuna Matata which in Kiswahili actually means no worries. Who would have known that the two clowns from The Lion King were right? Hakuna Matata. No worries for the rest of Johnson's days, I hope and pray for him. But he doesn't need me to wish that for him. The phrase already shines through him, through each tooth surrounded by his full dark-parted lips. I'll see you soon, Johnson, and we'll play again, I say as we part for the day. I smile but only half-heartedly because I want him to speak. I want him to say, see you later, or I had so much fun, or let's keep playing. But I know he won't. I know, I know he can't. But I also know he doesn't have to. Johnson doesn't have to use words. He puts his hand on my head to say once more, "Shikamo." But I know he's thinking other things, too. Marahaba, I say to show that I accept his goodbye, to say see you later, and to say I had so much fun. His contagious smile infects me once again, contagious like the diseases the children suffer from around me, diseases that cause their families to leave them behind, to fend for themselves, because... They were too much of a burden. Our exchange for the day is over, but suddenly it, it doesn't feel like enough. As I watch Johnson walk back with the rest, I want to turn around and yell in Kiswahili or in English or in sign language anything that he is not weak. None of you are the weak ones is what I want to tell them. Your parents are the weak ones. And I want to scream it to the top of my healthy lungs to make them hear it. They are weak. Not you. They are the weak ones because they didn't have the strength to care for you. They were angry. They were ashamed. They were disappointed. They wanted more. They are not. I want to say. Like you
0: oh my goodness <laughs>
6: this is, uh, I, <laughs> I
0: love the strength that goes into that last part that where you just go off on all these people that you feel are to blame and it's just so powerful and so raw and we just want to thank you Sam for coming back to us yeah, we didn't scare you away compliments thanks, thanks for coming back <laughs>
5: Okay. okay
0: okay so yeah let's just get into it um this connection that you find between johnson and your nephew is really unique and really encompasses a part of travel writing really perfectly like one of our favorite kinds here that we do often on life out loud is that um we involve some sort of relationship between the person that you find In yourself when you travel and the person that you are back home um so did you always feel this immediate connection between the johnson that you saw here and then your nephew at home or did it develop the more time you spent with him with johnson
6: um that's a that's a really good question and yes i felt it right away the the whole atmosphere of uh the orphanage we were in um light in africa kind of felt that way because um my, uh, I have actually have two kids in my family with disabilities, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> I know what it's like to 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 live with someone with a disability and take care of someone with a disability, and it's really it's not easy, especially to like just just to see them every day and like know that like they're they're never gonna talk, because um, my cousin, well maybe he will talk one day, and he does say some words, but he will never formerly a social connection with anyone because he doesn't have that ability and it's so sad because I know like there's someone in there that wants to come out and say something to me and then just can't so especially when I met Johnson um, and I found out he couldn't talk I was thought, immediately thought of Andrew because I talk to him all the time mm. and it's I know he he looks at me like sometimes he looks at me and he like wants to say something but he just can't say it so i immediately felt that connection and i really like that that's why i like really wanted to talk the whole time i was like oh i just want you to talk to me because like that smile just says everything and i just want to hear it in words but i know i can't so it's 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 a frustrating feeling it really is it really is (laughs) one thing that i
2: that i absolutely love about your piece and i think it's really captivating like when i when i um heard you um on the on the podcast I was like, wow, she went where I haven't seen anybody else go because you talk about communication in this way where you don't need words to understand each other, where it's about feeling and the connection and the emotional connection. And I haven't seen that in any other piece yet. And I really felt that. And I think that's on some level, we've all lived, uh, have lived that connection. So I want to know, how are you still in communication with um, Johnson? Um, how do you, can you talk more about the, uh, your connection and how, and, and the communication without words that you experienced?
6: Um, I experience that every day when I see my cousin, cause I, I can, I could talk to him. I could be like, Hey Andrew, like I can ask some basic questions. Like what's your name? And sometimes he'd be like, Drew. Oh, or how old are you? Oh, be so like, cute. well, he's, thir- he's going to be 13 now, but like, he'd be like 12. Um, but so I'm used to like having that connection of just like, like we'll, like I'll sit on the floor with him, um do puzzles. I'll talk to him. Um, my aunt will talk to him sometimes. We we my whole family does talk to him. But like there is never really no. Yeah, there's no social. There 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 is a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like he'll co- he'll go up to my aunt and hug he- hug her and kiss her, and like, like he, he, we know that he loves us and. And he knows that we love him. Mm-hmm. Um and with Johnson when I was there, like I felt connection right away the second he smiled at me. i was like this kid is so happy and he makes me so happy and he knows mm-hmm. that he makes me happy because yeah. every time he saw me, he I mean every time he saw anyone, he would just smile, like mm-hmm. this huge smile that he was just so happy to see them. And he brightened up anyone's day really. Mm-hmm. So um I do not have connection with him right now. Um because when when we were in, uh, like in Africa, um, I asked Mama Lynn if we could email them, and she said no. But it, I actually found out from Amanda, someone who else went on the trip, that we could write to them. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know we could write to them. Wow. So I'm in the process of writing a letter, actually. Because oh. <laughs> uh, that got so me really excited. Nice. And um, I did talk to my family about actually – because we um, can sponsor a child. I did talk to my family about sponsoring Johnson, mm. and um, they they agreed we just – need to like their website is down so I need to like contact the Mm -hmm. orphanage to see how that process goes but I really do I do want to sponsor him because like he does mean so much to me even though I was just there for a week I still feel so connected to him like his memories like will always be with me that's for sure
2: (laughs) amazing
1: you know I think was beautiful Samantha was when um because uh, I we obviously went to Tanzania together, mm-hmm. so I actually was fortunate enough to see your interaction with um, Johnson firsthand, and it was amazing. Um, but I thought it was so unique that throughout the um, the entire time there, um, we didn't know Swahili. Mm-hmm. like that simple fact that
6: like, like <laughs> well we knew some really I mean we knew the Mambo. <laughs> but
1: like the fact that like we had very Tumble. limited communication mm-hmm. to begin with with these children right. and yes. it came to the fact that like our body language yeah our, and our connections and, and mm-hmm. I mean you weren't the only one there who made connections I know uh, we had other people who did but the way in which you guys connected with with the kids yeah. I thought was beautiful that's why
6: unique. yeah that's why in this trip like i've i found that theater is very important especially when you don't have language um because you just connect to people in in ways even with when there's a language barrier like the connection i felt with these kids even though like they could speak english but like not to an extent where we can have like a full-blown like conversa- conversation conversation mm-hmm. um and the connection I felt every day when we were playing just theater games was just mm. incredible. Like it was, it was honestly incredible. And I, I think it's, I think it's really important. And uh, that, that's all I really got. it's just so important. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's so important now because like, I think it's so important to be, to be connected to the world. Yeah. Even if you don't have like, even if you have a language barrier, like it's, it's an amazing feeling just, that's not yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Art speaks a thousand words. yeah, it really does. So well, aside from this this connection and this communication and like this message of willingness uh, to, to be open to various kinds of people and, and allow yourself to be vulnerable to get every bit of them that you can. Um, what else would you want listeners to take away from your specific piece?
6: um i a few things um one if you do have a disabled child in your family a lot of a lot of the times family gets really frustrated because they'll never be normal they'll never be able to talk but i think there's more than just talking in in human life there's feelings there's playing games there's having fun there's just being happy and looking at each other's smiles and just that that should be enough like i i never need to talk to andrew to love him i love him because he's my cousin he's part of my family and i love his smile i love I love the way when he gets excited and he jumps up and down and he makes that E sound that I talk about in my piece. Like, I love everything about him. I love Johnson because of his smile and just his atmosphere. Like, we we are more than just... Language is a big huge part of, like, human life, obviously. But, like, just because someone has language not part of their communications doesn't mean there's, like, not other ways to communicate. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, family should really... Understand that and love their disabled child for being disabled, because um, they're special. <laughs> so I think that's that's what I'm trying to get out of my piece.
1: <laughs> well, Samantha, my love, I think that I I think that your importance of the smile starts at the very beginning of your piece and it definitely ends with it too. And I think that our listeners and the rest of us will definitely take away. Next time uh, we're all on the train, and if you're on the train while you're listening to this. Mm. Just look at someone and smile. And be, <laughs> because uh, they that opening line, creepy. I think, will yeah. stay with us forever. Yes. That uh, you, you don't know if uh, Johnson's infected or yeah. infectious, but you know his smile is. It's yeah. oh, amazing.
0: It's yes. beautiful. Thank you for coming here, Samantha. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the story. <laughs> Our last piece of the night is by a new author here at Life Out Loud, Brianna. A New York City native, Brianna Harrell is a 21-year-old studying forensic science at John Jay. Where science and art collides is where Brianna resides. In the lab performing an experiment or working with PR slash marketing in Snug Harbor, when Brianna isn't writing, procrastinating work, or singing her head off, she can be found binge-watching her favorite TV shows, attending concerts, or snuggling up to a really good book with hot cocoa on the side. After graduating college, she hopes to find herself in grad school, in a job she loves, occasionally traveling off to different parts of the world, or a mix of the three.
1: Let's take a listen to Brianna's piece. Here and Now.
5: In the United States, there are over 450,000 children in the foster care child care system. (sighs) But when I look at the three little girls before me, I don't see that statistic branded across their foreheads. I see their huge smiles gleaming up at me from the other side of my camera as I snap a picture of them in their sparkly 4th of July outfits. Even to this day, their existence and very being still shocks me. They were the brightest, most tolerable toddlers I've ever known. Whenever they finish eating their meals, they march to the bathroom, wash their own hands, keeping their hands underneath the water until their little fingertips resembled dehydrated grapes with no help from anyone if someone was sad in the house they went to the person and said what the matter why sad and ran their small miniature hands over the person's mouth as if trying to physically turn their frown upside down but then there were the little things that were off about them like how they stuffed their faces with food until their cheeks rivaled those of chipmunks or that time i witnessed the oldest and skin a chicken wing completely down to the gritty, pale, gray bone, leaving no trace of the meat that once resided on it. Then, how she'd continue to work on the bone, sucking at it like a lollipop. And sometimes, we even had to stop her from eating the bones themselves, because, well, that's just weird. Whenever this happened, which is almost every time I visited, their foster mother, a family friend named Louisa, leaned forward towards the table, eyes pierced on me and would say in the lowest tone she can manage. They do that because they don't eat at home. They eat like they've never going to eat again because sometimes that's how it was for them. The only times they misbehaved were the times when people left the house. Kicking, screaming, and crying were the norm. When Louisa, who they called Mama, had to go somewhere without them. This wasn't the kind of neediness that children regularly would have with their parents. This was the kind that resulted in tears. Face contorted from smiling and giggling to deep, twisted frowns and screams. Sometimes they'd grip onto her clothing, begging her not to leave. It was as if every time she left to go shopping or stepped out to smoke a cig, they thought she was going to leave. Forever. They're doing much better now, attending school and catching up with speech and reading skills. But it's always the little things that remind me that they were devastatingly plagued by a system that over 13,000 children in New York City alone are a part of the childcare system. There were so many cases like the three sisters. So many cases that were even worse, my aunt Eva Trevino tells me when we sit down to talk about her five years working for ACS as a social worker in the South Bronx.
1: The way it was before.
5: It was spring 1983 and Eva Trevino, a new addition to the social work team at ACS, St. Dominic's office, was, well, nervous. Usually, her calm, collected self was poised and ready for every opportunity thrown at her. This time, though, she was starting a job that could change her life, that she wanted to change her life. Fresh out of Lehman College with a degree in social work, Eva Trevina was ready to leave her mark on the world. One of the first things she remembers when she arrived was meeting her supervisor, an Indian man who no one really could understand. His thick accent would cut through conversations like it was nobody's business, she said. That first day, he handed her 115 red folders and said you've inherited these 115 cases read them and get acquainted her eyes bulge out of the side of her head at the bulging folders before her wondering what in the hell did she get herself into but shuffling through tons of case files would not be her only task for the day her supervisor handed her another red folder one that had taken up a permanent home on his desk and said this is a case i've been dealing with it will be transferred to you Well, because no one else wanted it. I want you to meet Janice. Today, he said. She thought, who is this Janice? So, even her supervisor drove down the streets of the South Bronx to our particular housing complex on Woody Crest Avenue. Janice lived on the ground floor of the rather short, bricked building. From the outside, it wasn't a heinous place, but definitely wasn't one you wanted to be caught dead in the night in. They knocked softly on the door. Nothing. After a few minutes, they knocked again a bit more aggressively. And then again, when Janice finally arrived at the door, she was as naked as she came to the world. Her breasts, visibly, took in all the crisp air of that hallway. Also, my Aunt Eva remembers, she was visibly high. She was very tall, skinny as a rail, and shiny black, my Aunt Eva said. The kind where she said, if I'd visit her at night, the only part of her I'd see were her pearly white eyeballs. Eva, shielding her own eyes from the tiny breast that leveled hers, turned towards her supervisor. For a brown Indian guy, he looked as though all the pigment in his plump face had been drained out, Eva told me, leaving him the same pale tan of Eva's skin. Quickly, Eva told her supervisor she would help her, with Janice proceeding to drag her lanky body to her bedroom to gather herself into a, a pink robe. The rest is vague, but there is one thing that is not. This would not be the last time she saw Janice. Over the five-year period she worked at St. Dominic's, she would be her caseworker for nearly four years, going far, far and beyond the reach that the title social worker entailed. Some of the times that Eva reached far beyond the role of a social worker were the times that she would visit Janice in jail. Sometimes she'd even bring her cigarettes. There was even that one time when Eva visited Janice in the hospital after being stabbed seven times because a bitch was trying to steal her drugs. She was severely hurt, all stitched and bruised up, but the bitch did not steal my drugs, Janice told Eva, proud of her win. One time, Janice stole meat from the supermarket and maintained her innocence, despite the fact that cops and other bystanders caught her with plastic-wrapped ribs stuffed underneath her jacket. Or the time where she was so high off her mind, she tried to claw off the feet of a chair because they looked like gold, and kicked out an ambulance store so hard she dented it, Eva said. Over the four years, Eva got to know Janice very well. Janice was one of the perks of the job. Sure, she was fucking crazy and high 99% of the time, but my Aunt Eva seemed to love her despite it all. She sounded sad as she recounted that Janice passed away years later. Many of Eva's cases stuck with her, made her sad, she said, but many of them brought her smile during our interview. She was always out in the field, she said, doing a whole number of different things. She sometimes found herself at home visits, interviewing children just placed into care or those that were later placed in foster homes. Sometimes she spent a full day of work in the courthouse, bound by shackles to answer questions to her highest capability, like in the cases in which parental rights were terminated or when a foster family adopted. Other days, she facilitated meetings between parents and children. She always carried the burden of keeping a watchful eye on the parents who were sometimes drug addicts, alcoholics, mentally ill, or as Eva said, often a mixture of the three. She'd also watch that the donations from companies such as Mattel were distributed evenly, or sometimes she'd shop with the parents to make sure vouchers were used for food and clothes, not pocketed. On good days, Eva would participate in many of St. Dominic's holiday and birthday parties for the kids and picnics in the summer. But on some days, the job reached places beyond homes or community centers or offices. Eva found herself in prisons or in mental institutions like Bellevue. She even once had to accompany two kids to Puerto Rico. On a lot of the days, she found herself in many locations in one day, trying to hunt people down. These hunts often led her, she said, to welfare hotels. Paid for by the city of New York, welfare hotels were apartment buildings and sometimes actual hotels that housed people in need. Since most hotels didn't have a full-functioning kitchen in each suite, the residents were given vouchers for outside food. On one particular day, Eva finally chased down a parent to one welfare hotel in the Bronx. This building, looking like it had survived three world wars and lived to tell its gruesome tale, she told me. The stench, the peeling wallpaper, and the dirt cake corners welcomed her on her first step into the place. Eva gingerly walked up to what looked like a security booth. A layer of plexiglass separated the hotel owners from the residents that lurked up and down their halls, many wandering in and out of their own apartments. The owner looked Eva up and down. His eyebrows caved in and said, Why are you coming here to visit these people? Eva, unsurprised by his reaction, or anyone's reactions anymore for that matter, said, "Will I work for ECS, his eyebrows released their tension, falling neatly back into their 180 degree angle. That explains it, he sighed, because you're the only people that come visit this place. Who are you looking for? Eva followed the man's directions to the second floor through a slim, narrow, and incredibly filthy hallway. A claustrophobic, germaphobes nightmare, she must have thought. When she arrived on the floor, all she saw were two women fighting, fists thrown out and tons of stuff flying all over the place. Eva, in a rush to get out of there, ducked to stay on task to find her client. The young girl she found was a drug addict, one who had abandoned her mixed-race twins at the hospital. She'd fled the girl, not knowing where to go with the twins. Her own family had thrown her out on the street. Ashamed and disgusted, she'd chosen a black man as a father to her twins. This wouldn't be the last time she found herself in and out of welfare hotels. Towards her third year on the job, she had one client who was a clinically diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Eva tracked her down to one of the fancier welfare hotels, one in Sheeps Bay, Brooklyn. It had immaculate rolled out carpets and stainless walls. No grime, no dirt. But she remembers the owner of the hotel actually telling her, You sure you want to see her? Because she's crazy. She attacked me a couple times. And boy was that hotel owner completely right. On visits between her and her kids, she ended up in a weird vortex of crying and laughing, taking no visible breaths in between. And then, sometimes she'd just sit there, frozen in time or staring into thin space, unaware of her kids that were sitting right across from her. But it wasn't just the clients that were hard to deal with. She remembers asking a lawyer once, where did you get your license from, a Cracker Jack box? During our interview, she rolls her eyes at the memory of the guy. On that day, that lawyer after only a five-minute interview, decided that he knew the kid better than Eva did, even though she'd respond to every single incident that the kid had over the years. He opted for the removal of the child from the grandmother's care, and when the kid's father came to the court, all dolled up in his best tie and suit, hair combed back with visibly cheap gel, and decided that now he wanted the child after all, a child he hadn't even bothered with in all the years she was born, it looked like he'd actually get her. Thankfully, That judge ruled in favor of Eva and the child was allowed to stay with her grandmother, the only caretaker she'd ever known. When they walked out of the courtroom that day, the lawyer came up to her and said, Oh look, you won. Eva, already done with this bullshit? Said, yeah, because you're an idiot and I know what I'm doing. Eva told me it wasn't just the lawyers with the I'm better than you will ever be attitudes. Some judges exhibited it too. With the case especially dear to her heart, the child was sent back home, even though there was a substantial amount of evidence provided to the judge that the mother was still on crack. Despite numerous statements from Eva, her supervisor, and even the child's grandmother, the judge did not budge in her decision. It took for the grandmother coming back to court with her own daughter's crack pipe for the judge to finally give the order to bring the child back into care. When the judge finally gave the court order, she said to Eva and to her supervisor, I see that at least two of you have a brain. Eva, eyes slit and heat radiating off her shoulders, said nothing and walked out, knowing very well that that judge was basically saying, caseworkers don't usually know what they're doing. But wow, what a coincidence I found two that do. Lots of people talk down about social workers, Eva told me. And this is what would happen day in and day out, she said. Parents would stroll into court, head held high, dressed like they won the damn lottery and cleaned up with a new hairdo they put their best sob story for the judge, bowling their eyes for everyone to see. A lot of the times, the judge would go for it instead of Eva's defense. Maybe these decisions were made in hopes of reuniting the family or maybe to get rid of the unwanted cases that kept recycling their own courts. Either way, one thing was certain. It took way too long to return children and too long to terminate parental rights. Between the mountains of lawsuits piled against ACS, the cover-ups for incompetent foster parents, and the disconnect between higher authority ruling over cases and the workers that handled the cases in real life, it was not hard to see the ways in which the child care system failed children. Sometimes, on rare occasions, it was actually best for the children to go back with their parents. My Aunt Eva loved when that happened. I mean, everyone did. On one of these rare cases, Eva found herself walking cautiously towards a condemned building in Brooklyn, one she had called a drug building. Drug buildings had trademark signs. They were worn down or abandoned buildings with squatters occupying them, or in this case, a drug dealer residency. They had no-lit sidewalks and dogs heavily barked on the roof. The eyes of the building's inhabitants trailed her, following her every move. They knew who illegally lived there and who didn't. And if you didn't live there, you were most likely sent by the state. Otherwise, there was no reason to go there. Upon arrival, she learned that the father sold drugs, but he wanted out or at least to move into a better place. After hearings and visits, some of which Eva can't recall at this time, it was determined that the kids could go back, and they did. Eva felt good about that one, she said. The parents cooperated and really cared even if they did illegal things. That's why it was important to really check. In a much better section of town, a better building, a better setup, Eva would one day find things way worse than she might in a welfare hotel or in a squatter's building. On one day, she entered a fairly decent place on the east side. She was greeted by strips of flypaper that hung from the ceiling, where dozens of flies laid crucified. The only furniture were car seats in the living room, one bed, one crib. The kitchen was a desert, she said. No food roamed except one box of cereal. The shit stained diapers piled high on the floor rivaled the stench from the bathroom. After the child was removed, Eva visited the woman again, in hopes of planning the next steps with her, how she could get her baby back. The woman was furious, though, and upon one knock, she released her huge German shepherd on Eva. She flew down 17 floors of stairs to escape the dog, breezing down the steps like they were hot lava. Despite all the craziness she encountered and her passion towards her cases, sometimes the title social worker got way too much. Eva recalls one certain case with a woman named Lourdes. Lourdes, 30-something years old with the wild curly hair, was a full-fledged prostitute. She sold her bits and pieces to the highest bidder, Eva said, at the underpass at Hunts Point Market, a place where truckers would line up, their gas-guzzling trucks idling as they got their money's worth. The only way Eva could contact her was by going to the market because she knew she'd always be there. Because of that, Eva was sometimes mistaken for a prostitute herself, receiving disturbing innuendos and glances while she searched for Lourdes. Unfortunately, because of her circumstances, current arrests, and reckless behavior amongst many other factors, Eva had to terminate Lordis's rights. Eva would find out later that Lordis had a death wish. She told her once, sometime after Eva terminated her parental rights, that she wanted to kill herself, but she just didn't have the balls to. So instead, she did every drug she could and sold herself to strangers. She figured she'd die quicker that way. Another time Eva thought the job was way too much was the time she was court-ordered to travel way upstate to a federal prison with a boy named Michael in order for him to meet his father. Eva remembers that all that surrounded the prison facility were sheets of snow, with one road going in either direction. The facility was an all-white building from top to bottom. As they walked inside, they were hit with that institutional smell, the kind the hospitals always seemed to have. The environment in the facility was very stale, and voices echoed off the walls. Michael clung onto Eva's pants, afraid of all the big guards with the batons. After the routine pat down in the metal detector scan, they were led through a gate that connected to the cells of the prisoners. On either side as they walked down the corridor were prisoners hastily reaching out, trying to grab onto anything they could. When the kid's father came, even Eva felt a little scared. He was built, with defined muscles busting out of his prison gear. He had curly brown hair with a goatee and tannish skin to match. Towering in at 5 feet 10 inches tall, even Eva was afraid of him. When he tried to reach for his son, Michael, the boy screamed his head off to the point where he had to be taken to another room. Eva stayed and tried to explain to him. Look, she said, I want to run away too, so I can only imagine what he, a little boy, is going through. The dad solemnly shook his head. I guess you already know what I'm in here for, right? He said. Eva knew he was a lifer and what that probably meant, but she still responded. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help you with your son. It's none of my business what you did to get yourself in here, okay? She proceeded to tell him. Honestly, this is an environment for a child, and I don't think you want to see this child come here every month and see this child exposed to this. He sighed and said, No. No, I don't really want that. What can I do to prevent him from coming back? Eva paused for a second. Well, you need to give the court a letter, because I'm bound by a court order to bring the kid here, and the only thing that can stop that is you. He agreed, and then he said softly, Can I just ask one thing? Eva nodded. Can you have the foster mother send me pictures of Michael growing up? I'd really like that. Eva, of course, said yes. And he did just that. He sent a letter to the judge, terminated his parental rights, and the foster mother agreed to send pictures of the kid at birthday parties, school events, and holidays. Michael's case was one of the last red folders to pass through Eva's desk. At the time, she had her own young child to take care of, and the pay for her caseworker was real shit, she said. She was tired. Eva transferred to the city of New York's Department of Child Care and remained there as a supervisor. When ACS and his constituents fell under heavy scrutiny for a famous child abuse case in the 1990s, Eva, having felt the immense pressure from every direction she turned, decided it was time, finally, to leave her role in the child care system behind. Where we are now. As Eva speaks about her time working as a caseworker, she does so with pride and nostalgia. Her face gets a little brighter with each and every story she tells me. And when she tells me that, eventually, she just had to leave, that she just couldn't do it anymore, not with her own kid at home, she seems sad. She seems to miss her clients, like Spunky Janice, but she doesn't seem to regret having left. It wasn't the kind of thing you could do your whole life, I guess. Unless, you were willing to let it kill you. Uh,
0: spunky Janice! <laughs> I, 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 there's, there's literally no other way around me making that noise this piece is so
1: impactful it's so many ways and it just ah, ah. it really is such it's in an my incredible heart piece. yeah i don't think that we've ever actually had anything like this before. no it's unique and i also don't remember the last time i had a discussion with anybody about social work and what that meant aside from deciding what i was going to do with my forensic psychology degree (laughs) so thank you for bringing that Mm -hmm. to our attention yeah thank you
0: no problem it's like
1: a series of
0: untold stories that like people don't hear often and that's what makes i I, I say this every single time i've been saying this a lot lately but it's just it's really been resonating with me that a lot of the stories we tell could have gotten lost and the fact that they aren't makes it so special and i'm so grateful so thank you for this piece thank Thank you for having written it the way you did
3: so brianna why did you choose to write about foster children and your aunt eva's experiences as a social worker
5: um so this piece came out of um a micro for uh, Madraza's mm. class. Oh, I remember oh, no. those. <laughs> 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 Ooh.
2: Throwback. Oh, uh, in my existence.
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, it was the literary journalism one. Mm. So um, one of the questions, I went totally off of her own directions. Um, and one of them was um, tell a story about you know, someone who works in a field that not a lot of people know about. Mm. And so the first thing that came to mind was my Aunt Eva because mm. that's something that a lot of people either don't want to talk about mm. Or have already written it off as something else. So I mm. thought, ooh, I might as well write this story because she's told me so many over the years and I've yeah. kinda grown up like listening to like the different people that she's helped that I just yeah. wanted to like actually write it.
2: Yeah. So yeah.
5: That's awesome. Like I was saying before, so cool. like
2: this
1: piece it it touches upon and, and as you just said that it touches upon stuff that people don't want to talk about people already yeah. have written off yeah, yeah. and that's something that's that you touch on I a love. couple of times in your in your piece when you're explaining um your aunt says that you know like people have already written off these kids or written off these parents and um it's funny that the last i still remember the last conversation i had um about uh the foster system And uh, it was a friend of mine who is a social worker and she was just like, yeah, if you want to be depressed all the time and you want to be sad and you just like are tired of of doing everything like um, or doing everything for people who don't want anything done for them, Hmm. then go into this field. And I feel like that's the way that everyone kind of looks at this, um, Hmm. like so much so that I think that so many people who study psychology don't even look at it as an option to go into ACS.
3: Mm Oh, cool. I was going to say, I I remember... um, Talking to, I remember being with this, uh, going on a date with this w- a girl who was a social worker, and she was telling me. I, I asked her what she, what does she do, and I asked her what you know, like what what does that entail? And she started telling me some of the things um, about like the living conditions uh, of the uh, of the home of the children and the people she works with, and I was just like, what? I'm like, why why do you do this? <laughs> like, how how can you go into those homes? But you know, someone has to. Someone has to help these. Someone has to help these kids, um, and you know these parents help them get their lives back on track. Um, so thank you to all you social workers out there.
5: <laughs> Shout out to all the social workers.
1: Definitely. But I guess I think I just heard you say that this was for your literary journalism piece, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so Karen, um, yeah, Karen had touched upon how uh, like you're telling stories, but you're telling so many different stories in this you're not just telling your aunts which is the beauty about um literary literary journalism is that you rise to the occasion of taking the time to interview your aunt um but in a way you end up telling the story of so many other people's lives so how was uh that for you i mean i know you said that you'd grown up around her telling stories consistently, mm-hmm. but when you actually sat down to write this piece, did you, um, in like, what was that process for you and, and what was challenging about it?
5: Um, So when I first interviewed her, it was, like, probably, like, two hours long on the phone. <laughs> Whoa. And, yeah, because I had, I had maybe a list of, like, eight questions and I really didn't know what to expect and I was just trying to hit the, the, the points of, like, how was the work environment, you know, what happened and then out of those came other stories that I never even actually heard of. Mm-hmm. So, It was kind of crazy. I spent really long time like transcribing the interview because, you know, I wanted she said so many great things. And she's so like sarcastic that (laughs) I wanted to keep so many of her stuff that she said. um, And some of it is in the piece. Mm -hmm. And also within those questions, she was jumping from different er like eras of her life. So it would be like you know, time when she met Janice, time when, you know, Lourdes came into the picture and I had to like kind of piece those together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a second time and that time it was face to face. so It was easier. I was taking more notes that way, but that's kind of like the process of it mm-hmm. that I went through to write this piece.
1: No, it's great. You did a great job in
5: sewing all those together.
1: Like I almost, um. like I, I can see each moment sort of happening. And I, I mean, I imagine, because you said it was over a span of, what, five years five years yeah. yeah and for me i was like yeah it happened right after the other bam 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 and it, you just did a really great job and okay. and we can attest for those of us who have taken uh creative nonfiction that literary journalism is no joke
3: <laughs> guys, of my existence. and
1: you know and it's really easy to sit down and write about yourself but when you're given the task to write about someone else Oof you really want to quickly take back all that complaining you did about (laughs)
2: yourself. Yes. Pretty much.
0: (laughs) It's so interesting because you start out the semester like, I don't want to talk about myself. Like, I'm a secretive person. I'm a writer. I'm mysterious. I'm a writer. That's why I'm here. And then you can't stop talking about yourself. And then Madrazo asks you to talk about someone else and you're like, no, (laughs) no. It it just feels so weird. So the fact that you did this so artfully and so wonderfully and captured all these stories is like really cool yeah so lastly what do you want readers listeners (laughs) lastly
5: what do you want listeners to take away from your piece um i'm not really quite sure i mean i wrote the piece just because it was a assignment but it really was just a way to get her story out and i guess what i want to take back you know i want people to take back from it is that You know this stuff happens in real life and it continues to happen Mm -hmm. and the foster care system in new york sucks true um the three girls from the beginning of this piece Mm -hmm. um that i describe in in detail um they're like real girls that i've like hung out with and yeah yeah, yeah. and babysitted Mm -hmm. and they've been through so much and the oldest one is what six years old and you know she's had to do so many things and they've been in and out of care like crazy and the father's a druggie and the mother is just an asshole and <laughs> she really is though no um, it happens i'm, I'm yeah. laughing
1: because of the raw honesty that you're yeah, bringing forth for sure. and that you also bring forth in this piece mm-hmm. with just various parents uh, you know a lot of people um especially like in your teenage years and things like that they're like oh that teenage angst like screw my parents but people also fail to take into account that some parents don't take their role of parenting seriously totally yeah and 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 and, or they can't do it because of you know circumstances Mm -hmm. due to drugs mental illness so on and so forth so it's just amazing to see you bring that to the table and bring that to our attention Mm -hmm. um but yeah thank you
5: thank thank you you so much thank you for being here today thank you for having me Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs)
1: Well, that
0: concludes our fifth episode of the season, Take Good Care. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.
2: We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at life out loud
1: and especially to our audience we hope you loved these stories as much as we did and it was certainly a joy to bring them to you a very special thank you to everyone who's listening in and we'll see you soon have a good one guys good night